This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. Hello, and welcome to The Way Forward. I'm Scott Wenger, Editorial Director of Barron's Advisor. Today, we welcome Matt Wesley, Managing Director of the Center for Family Wealth Dynamics and Governance at Merrill Lynch. Matt and I are going to discuss the best strategies and avenues for working with high net worth families on estate planning, philanthropy, environmental, social, and governance investing, and helping to ensure that parents can motivate, not hamper, the future success of their children. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Matt, so our listeners know you've studied sociology, theology, and law. Those skill sets and themes must be of great use in counseling clients and crafting solutions to clients' issues. Tell us about that. Sure, sure, Scott. My checkered past. Uh, so as I look at this, mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I think about the the work that I do with families, obviously the legal uh, background comes in handy, although I'm not practicing law in any way, shape, or form any longer. One of the things that I realized over my years as an estate planning attorney was that families are having to live with the structures that attorneys create for a very long period of time, sometimes 100 years Uh Uh, these trusts can go on uh, for a long time. And so having that kind of background allows me to understand and appreciate the structures that families are living with. The sociology background was actually, uh, comes up more than you might think. It was an undergrad degree for me. And so uh, I wouldn't say that I'm deeply studied in it, but uh, one of the things that it attuned me to was the importance of groups and how groups function and what goes on in groups. And so obviously a family is a group. It's probably the most basic group uh, that we have in our society. And so really understanding those group dynamics and understanding how uh, groups construct themselves, how they build themselves, how they understand themselves, how they make meaning is absolutely critical. And the theological background is surprisingly relevant in that, uh, that the work that I do with families is oftentimes what I might call pastoral. That's completely secularized. It's not in a religious context in any way, shape, or form. But the the work of listening, of, of encouraging, of organizing, of strategizing, of, um, of uh, there's an old saying in ministry that you want to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And uh, all of that is very much in play in the work that I do with families. I imagine so. I imagine that within the specialties individually of sociology, of theology, and of law, listening, making sure that people feel like they've been heard, is really paramount to a successful outcome. And then layer on top of it, the notion of family wealth, perhaps considerable family wealth, and ensuring that all players feel like their wishes have been heard, and to a certain extent will factor in the outcome, it's got to be pretty key. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, no question about it. And and how you become responsive to the individuals within within the family system, given the fact that oftentimes the family has a hard time hearing from one another for all sorts of different reasons, the roles that have been established and the pre- preconceptions uh, that exist, uh, um, the the uh, the complexity of the issues involved. Uh, sometimes it it just requires an outsider to help 
help the family slow down enough to to listen and to hear one another. And then obviously, uh, as a facilitator coming in and hearing what people are saying, looking for the points of uh, synergy and, and synthesis becomes a critical role for uh, for the outsider uh, consultant or 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 advisor. So when you're meeting with families, when advisors are meeting with families, these are families that are looking at confronting transitions. Um, many times, no doubt, they're confronting it with a positive outlook and, and harmony. Um, but what are some of the key challenges that families in transition face? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one of the things that uh, that people tend to do when they think about transitions is they think of an event that there's some precipitating event that creates a transition. When in fact, the transition, uh, most often the kinds of transitions we're talking about are really a phase of the family's life. And oftentimes that phase is much longer than you might expect. It might, uh, it might start even with the birth of children and how their character is developed over time. But it really takes on some momentum, uh, maybe five, 10 years before, the actual event of transition is going to occur, and sometimes even longer than that. And it usually peaks after the transition has happened when the new reality has sunk in and, and the points of greatest uh, potential tension exist there. So these arcs are long. Um, and, and so being prepared for them and understanding what they're about becomes important. I'm going to take your question and flip it a little bit and tell you what I think really makes for successful transitions. And then we can, uh, we can uh, kind of extrapolate from that the reverse. Yes, please do. Please do. So um, the, somebody once asked me, they said, what's the one thing that you think families uh, should focus on in, in these times of transition? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not clever enough to come up with one thing, but I think there are four that really, that really come to the fore uh, for me. And the, the, they are, first of all, that the family has a, a strong commitment to one another to being together as a family and moving through uh, that process. And part of that commitment is a, a real care for one another, a desire to put uh, one another's best interests at the center of the conversation to recognize it's kind of a one for all and all for one approach to, um, to, to the dynamics of care and compassion within the family. And that uh, might be seen as contrary to the third element uh, of this of this little stool, and the third element is the um, uh, is the element of candor uh, that that families that tend to do really well are able to be honest with one another. And while that may seem that it uh, contradicts care, it actually supports it. That we know that we can trust people when they're honest with us, and that honesty breeds a degree of care as well which isn't to say that you bring up every little thing, but on the big stuff and the important stuff, you're honest with, with the family. And then the final piece of it is that the families, and this might even be the most important piece, is that families committed to learning together. Uh, one of the things that we hear a lot about in family dynamic circles is the responsibility to prepare the rising generation. And we'll probably get into that a little bit later on. But my experience is that the future is always containing challenges that require adaptation and that preparation is not enough. Preparation helps you get ready for the battles 
uh, that have already been fought uh, and the challenges that have already been met, but it doesn't prepare you to adapt. And so families need to become learning organizations where they're uh, they're constantly learning and constantly growing together uh, in their understanding of one another and of the challenges they face in the and the future. So I would say those are the four big pieces, the commitment, the care, the candor, and the willingness to learn. And that probably the the uh, the challenges are are sustaining those things uh, through the through the transition and having people really engage in in those four four elements in a thoughtful and and uh, and concerted way. I'm glad you reiterated them right at the end. I was about to do that because I think <laughs> they were so vital for people as they try to carve out takeaways from this conversation, but. Yes, the commitment, the care and concern, the candor, the learning. And then you, for me, you actually added one at the end, which is, uh, you know, planning is, uh, you know, to quote the cliche, it's worth as much as the paper it's printed on or the, uh, the screen you're looking at. Because, of course, in actual operation, it's being able to adapt to what actually happens, being, you know, responding to the world as it decides uh, some of what's going to happen that. You could have a great plan and maybe you'll be able to execute it flawlessly, but parts of it might very well have to change. And of course, it's hard to think of any significant thing that any human being has touched or encountered in the past uh, you know, year and a half that has not been laid asunder or altered by COVID. So I think yeah. it's great uh, that you're underscoring the importance of preparation, because if you're yeah. not prepared, you can't even begin to tackle and succeed with what you hope to, but it's being able to deal with what you're not expecting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want to um, spend some time talking about how much parents should consider leaving their children uh, in their wills, or even sometimes before they, they pass. And to tee up this part of our conversation, I want to read this quote from you from a few, a few years ago on this topic. Uh, Regarding the proper amount or percentage of inheritance, you said, the answer is as much as you prepared them for. It really puts the emphasis on on what should be the emphasis, which is not the amount of money, but rather the readiness of the children to receive that money. I think there's a common notion out there, just continuing your quote, that wealthy kids inherit cash and stocks and bonds, but they don't. They inherit structures like trusts and foundations and limited liability corporations. You have to know how the foundations and the structures structures and how the LLCs work. I thought that was a really potent quote, and I'd love you to Hmm. pick it apart and emphasize for our listeners today uh, how that really strikes at the notion of what advisors should be doing with their clients. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate uh, uh, you picking up on this. Um, I think it's critically important. When, when clients come to us, they're asking essentially three questions uh, when they come to the Center for Family Wealth. And the, the, uh, uh, the three questions are, how much should I leave my kids? How do I talk to them about it? And how do I prepare them to receive the wealth that they're they're going to receive. And that first question is almost always a quantitative question. How, how much should I leave my children? When in fact, I think the question should be uh, how well prepared are my children to receive the wealth that they're, they're about to receive? And what 
is the amount that I can leave them that won't burden them, that will create problems for them, that will uh, that will be liberating um, in the process. And so uh, that question of of getting children ready for wealth and and the implications of it uh, becomes becomes paramount in the in the process of planning. So when I take a look at the um, at that um, uh, that dynamic, we tend to see uh, some core competencies that are useful to think about. And some of these are competencies that advisors have a, a really profound impact on. The first competency, it might be considered financial competency. How do uh, people earn money, save it, spend it, share it, uh, invest it, borrow it, protect it? Uh, those are skills that anybody leading a normal financial life in our in our cultures has to understand. You know, how do I insure my car? Uh, how do I understand he- health insurance? How do I understand my uh, retirement plans? And what do I do in order to uh, to save money? Uh, how do I give it away wisely? Everything that is uh, part of a person's normal financial life falls in that bucket. The second bucket is really wealth competency, which has to do with the uh, structures that people inherit. As that quote says, people don't inherit money it, when, the, when the estates are large, uh, larger than, say, tax-exempt amounts. And tax planning comes into play and trusts are established and maybe there are foundations and, and other entities. Uh, that's what they're inheriting. And if they don't understand those structures and they can't make those structures work, then they're disempowered. And so how do we work with people to help them understand the structures? And not only do they inherit the structures, they inherit the advisors that come along with those structures. So uh, an inheritance in a, in a truly wealthy family is going to include not only these trusts, but they're going to inherit lawyers and accountants and, uh, and financial advisors. And how they work with those people becomes, uh, becomes critical uh, to their success as individuals. The third competence we see is governance competence. And this isn't necessarily true in all families where, uh, where some people may set up estate plans that just divide the assets between, uh, between the kids and they all go their separate ways. But if there's, for example, a foundation that they have to manage together, they have to learn to operate together as a team. And what that means to operate together as a team is what we mean by governance competency. And so how do they uh, resolve conflict? How do they get aligned with one another? How do they create the accountabilities that they need if they're going to own, say, a family cabin together or they're going to be running uh, an investment partnership together? They they have to learn those skills, um, which are oftentimes underutilized in families and underdeveloped in families. Um, and it's where a lot of the problems come in uh, down the road through the transition as children try to learn how to work together. And then the uh, next competency would be business competency if they're left assets that they need to make productive. So, for example, uh, real estate or an operating company or, um, or some sort of uh, uh, an investment uh, entity, they need to know how to turn that capital and make it as productive as possible. And then the final competency would be philanthropic competency. We all know it's easy to write a check for a couple hundred dollars. It's really difficult to give away 200,000 and have it uh, be meaningful gifts. 
So those would be the competencies that we point to. Not every competency needs to be developed in every family, but I would say that financial advisors can play a huge part in those first two competencies. The financial competency by helping adult children of their clients develop financial plans and really understand the basics of saving and investing uh, and just doing a lot of hands-on education uh, with their clients' children. And then with um, with wealth competency, obviously financial advisors are are well versed and understand these structures of wealth. So helping uh, helping uh, people understand what those structures are and how they function and what their roles and responsibilities are within those structures can be a, a useful thing for advisors to plug into. I appreciate the depth of that answer. Uh, I want to pick up on a word. Uh, you used a few moments ago, but play off of it. You were talking about education, and I'm sure that there are uh, advisors and others must uh, confront families all the time where children might be brilliant, but uh, as is true for virtually all of us, our brilliance might be in limited areas. But I want to turn to education for families uh, that are high net worth. They often have the privilege of not even being burdened by the you know, the very high cost of higher education for one, mm-hmm. let alone two or three or more children. But even for families of uh, mass affluent, uh, who, who living mass affluent lives, or even those at a lower level, is there a general thought that you convey or that you have on whether parents should fully cover the cost of education for their children if they can? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it varies from family to family. And part of it's going to depend on the values that that family has and how they place uh, value on education. I want to circle this and loop this into what we were talking about just a moment ago. One of the things that I think we think of when we think of educating children about wealth is we view it as kind of a book learning sort of thing. They need to understand what a stock is and what a bond is. Uh, But oftentimes they don't actually touch those things. And so when when we view uh, preparing children, we view it a lot like driver's education. Um, There's certainly a, a course room component to teaching a child how to drive. But there's also real life opportunity to uh, to engage in driving, for example, first in the parking lot and then on the city street and then in uh, in busier traffic and then ultimately on the freeway. And first they do it under adult supervision with mentors and then maybe with family members. And then finally, they're allowed to drive on their own. And um, and so. I think that's a great analogy to what we're doing here. So one of the things, and I'm coming back to your question about education. One of the things that we see in wealthy families is that stuff just shows up. There's a new car in the garage. There's art on the wall. There's a a new sofa. and, And nobody really gives much thought as to where it came from. So I'm not sure that the... Uh, goal here is to either pay for or not pay for college education, but to truly understand and appreciate what that money, where that money is coming from, where it's going and how it's being spent. So to give the child an actual experience of understanding that it will go a long way towards um, uh, towards helping them connect this education they're receiving with the financial lives uh, that their parents have. And so whether or not uh, the child is responsible for certain expenses um, 
as as they're away from college, um, there there's great value in in making them uh, responsible for at least some of that. At the very least, creating transparency around what it's costing, and maybe even helping children by saying, "Here's an account uh, that you have to uh, to pay uh, your tuition and your school books and your." Uh, your expenses at at home and the dorm fees, so that um, as they're as they're going through college, they actually have the experience of managing a budget to get themselves educated. It sounds like what you're what you're underscoring are the themes of responsibility, uh, yes, initiative, and uh, value. Uh, values. Right. You know that right. if they're going to receive a higher education and maybe receive other gifts or other quality of life uh, perks that come with being raised in their family, whether it's a fairly modest income or one that's quite extensive, that they appreciate and understand what goes into creating that later on for themselves and hopefully for their own families. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and if you put them in experiences where they actually have to feel the uh, the experience of working with the money and demonstrating responsibility around it, they actually learn a lot more than they do if you just sit them down and uh, and explain the cost of a college education, and then you write all the checks. So the more that you can engage them in that process, the better. Great. You're, you're based in Bellevue, Washington, so technology wealth is extensive in your community. Yes. Wealth is relatively nouveau riche. How are those families, as you found it, Different from those with more decades of intergenerational wealth. Uh, that's a great. That's a great question. So, one of the things that uh, that we see in in generational wealth, and particularly when you get to the third and fourth, fifth, sixth generation, is those families have have accomplished something that is really profoundly difficult, which is to move from the creation of wealth to uh, to the sustenance of wealth. Uh, There's a great quote by Nathan Rothschild who said that it takes a great deal of boldness and a great deal of courage to make a great fortune. And once you have it, it takes 10 times as much wit to keep it. And so um, I think the big challenge for people who are uh, who are wealth creators is to underappreciate the fact that collaboration is going to be a necessary skill in the next generation and that that collaboration is hard. It's really hard to get a family to collaborate for 30, 40, 50 years in that second generation. So it's well set up for the third. And the families that have managed to hang on to wealth have figured that out. And it turns out, if you look at the statistics, only about 10% of wealthy families manage to hang on to wealth through, uh, through the third generation. And so the the odds against success are long. It's a it's a hard road to hoe. So most of the wealth creators that we run into who are first generation wealth creators are focused on creating structures that they think will contain uh, the issues that they're going to create trust and put restrictions on the trust and all the rest. But uh, our experience is that culture, uh, family culture, will eat those structures for breakfast, and so. The, the families that have been around for a while know and understand that fact, understand the culture uh, issues and, and work really hard on it. Whereas oftentimes first generation wealth creators are, uh, are a bit blind 
to the uh, to the power of culture and the power of culture to undo all their great planning. When you were saying a moment ago about the uh, the difficulties of sustaining wealth for 30, 40, 50 years, it made me think that, and I presume this is probably true for all families, uh, of course, including my own on occasion, uh, it can seem like it can be hard to retain anything for 30, 40, 50 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So what do you do when there is significant strain in a family that threatens a positive outcome? Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. There, are, when when I look at families that are uh, that are uh, moving through this process, I tend to see kind of two different tendencies. Uh, one tendency is to uh, is to drift apart, and that's the vast majority of families. Uh, they tend to, if there are tensions within the family, they just tend to avoid it, and it tends to lead to a kind of drifting apart. Uh, there are some families that you read about in the newspapers where it explodes into into real conflict, and uh, and but those are the, those are the minority. So one of the things that is true, I think, in the literature about families, and you go back and you read uh, the family therapists, they would tell you that a central dynamic in families is anxiety. That people are constantly anxious about different things. So parents are anxious about uh, their kids, whether they're going to get into a good college, uh, you know, how they're, uh, how they're, they're driving their, um, their life. And once they get out of college, that anxiety tends, tends to continue. And likewise, the kids are anxious about various things. So there's this tremendous amount of anxiety. And what we've found is that, um, that the thing that allows families to hang together and stick together is focusing not on the anxiety, but focusing on things like having a common purpose. What's the purpose of this wealth and how do we expect this wealth to be used? And what are, and secondarily, what are our core values? What, what are the principles that we're going to follow as we move forward? And then finally, what are our common interests? What, how do we as a family perceive the common interests that we have together? And oftentimes when you begin to forge those things and you do a great job of listening uh, to the family, and you uh, take into account all these various perspectives and viewpoints, you're able to begin to forge the bedrock uh, material of what the family truly uh, values as almost a moral vision of the family. Who are we and what do we want to become? Now, obviously, if conflict escalates, it, there are other uh, interventions that need to happen and and maybe communication skills and even forms of formal mediation and things like that. But for the average family, just simply uh, figuring out how are we going to come to agreements where uh, where our common interests and our individual interests are aligned. And do, do I understand your interests well enough to support those? That's where that care comes in. And then also the the commitment to to what is our common interest together. And it may be something as simple as saying, okay, if we pool our money, we're going to be able to invest in many more and different kinds of assets than we would be able to do if we if we all went our separate ways. And that's valuable to us. And I imagine ESG is an important part of that uh, conversation. Yeah, and this, but that is very true. And particularly with the rising generation, what we see in the rising generation is obviously a significant amount of awareness around uh, not only the, the 
the importance of ESG and how ESG functions, but also uh, the fact that the companies that are that are paying attention to those things oftentimes are doing quite well. Uh, they're the ones that tend to be uh, having disproportionate market growth. Now, I'm no expert on ESG, and I would always advise people uh, in making ESG invest- investments to go speak to their advisors about it. But I think advisors are well served to really understand the world of ESG because it's um, it's gaining uh, a huge uh, amount of traction within the rising generation, and I think increasingly in the in the incumbent generations as well. Yeah, we've really seen an extraordinary change in awareness and interest and evolution in the products that are available, and then uh, fortunately as well in the in the invest, investment returns that no doubt are helping uh, drive all of the attention. Well, you know, I have to say, Matt, this has been a great conversation. We're, we're coming up uh, near our time limit. So I want to ask you one final question in which we conclude with a Barron's tradition, asking our guests for one final actionable idea that advisors could put right into practice. Can you tackle that for us? Yeah, um, it, it's a great question. Um, there was a buddy of mine who uh, who raised the question of what would you what would you tell people uh, if they're first starting out with a family, and and what would you recommend that they do? And I, I thought about it uh, for quite a while, and I came up with something that is deceptively simple. I and the the recommendation or the statement I made to him was, I would encourage people to stop. Look and listen. Stop what they're doing and get out of the scripts that they typically run through with clients. We are so solution focused and so solution oriented that we oftentimes miss really important things that we should be paying attention to. And stopping just allows us to do that. Look, see what's going on. Really observe what's happening. What's happening with your client? What's happening in their in their lives? What's happening um, not only in the markets, but but in the intersection of the markets and and the the well being of the clients that you're serving? And then listen. Uh, ask really good questions. Ask questions that uh, are provocative that uh, get people to think. And I think if we uh, if advisors just uh, do those three things their relationships with their clients are enhanced and the opportunities for actually serving not only the clients, but their families go up uh, dramatically. It's great points because I think when we stick to the script too closely, we miss right what's right before our eyes and our ears, the facts that should actually drive the decision, not what we think should drive the decision. So I think uh, it's great to underscore how important it is to engage and absorb and uh, to do that actively. Uh, Matt, I want to thank you very much for your time and sharing your knowledge. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'd like to ask everyone to tune in next week for the Barron's Advisor podcast, Actionable Intelligence with Steve Sandusky. Steve will speak with Lauren Williams, a financial advisor with a very different kind of resume. She's the first American woman to medal in both the summer and winter Olympic Games. Be sure to watch for that podcast next week on Barron's Advisor. Matt, I'll give you a chance to, uh, I wanted to thank you again for being with us today. 
It's my great pleasure. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And until next time, thanks for listening to another edition of The Way Forward. This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.